Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It's Wednesday morning. Last night, Donald Trump gave his State of the Union address and Nancy Pelosi ripped it up. We thought we were going to be 36 hours on from the Iowa caucus. We would have digested the results, come to some mature season conclusions. We still don't know what fully happened. Oh, Iowa. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more the print magazine, the LRB app, and unlimited access to that archive, all for just £1 an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me forward slash talk. Up to 72% I saw. Yeah, I'm seeing 61 to 72, but have the proportions changed? No. We don't know. There's been no reporting on... Here to try and help us understand what we know about what we know so far, Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy, Gary Gerstle, Professor of American History. So I'll give my just take on it, and then you tell me if you disagree. I think we probably all agree it's not a good look for the Democratic Party, but for the candidates from what we know so far, so as we speak, Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders are roughly neck and neck, and then there are these three measures now of how you count the votes. Sanders is a bit ahead on the popular vote, the raw numbers. Buttigieg is a bit ahead on the delegates, or maybe their level now. We'll see. I'm going to call him Pete. Pete didn't do well enough to break out. Bernie underperformed relative to what looked like he was a few days ago that he was going to win relatively convincingly. Elizabeth Warren did kind of bleh, bad for Biden. Klobuchar didn't do well enough. Bloomberg isn't in it. So never mind that it's a disaster for the Democratic Party. If you look at the numbers, it's just like bad for everybody. Who's who's who's? It's who's, not bad for Sanders, I don't think. Don't you? No. I do. No, I don't think so either. I, so can I say why I think it's bad yeah. for Sanders? Yeah. Okay, so he was neck and neck. And, it's really bad for Biden. They were neck and neck in the polls and then Biden has fallen away. But Sanders had this kind of momentum and he was going up and then he had these big rallies Michael Moore, and people were saying, oh, these rallies, all these young people, there are two questions here. One is, will the young people actually turn out and vote? Always the question. And the other is, some of these people are out of state, which they were not clear that this actually reflects. And relative to that, it's a 25, 26%. He did okay, but it's not breakout. He's going to win in New Hampshire. And the thing that I think is the problem with the Sanders campaign, which is because it skews young, that the basic fact, which is that sound like a broken record on this, there aren't enough young people and they don't vote in big enough numbers. And there's just enough in this result to confirm that. Well, I look at it from a slightly different perspective. I add together the votes for Warren and Sanders, and if we add them together, we get more than 40% of Iowan Democrats voting for a candidate of the left. This may be the best performance by the left ever in a primary or, or in a very long time. And it indicates that the left presence in the campaign is going to be there till the very end. Now, 
the vote is divided between Warren and Sanders. And I think Sanders ultimately is probably going to win that battle. We don't know what Warren's long-term game plan is going to be. She's going to be determined to fight some more. I do think the disaster of Iowa, and I think we need to talk somewhat about the disaster of Iowa and what it represents in American politics and what it represents for the Democratic Party, did hurt Bernie a lot. We still don't have all the results, and he may, in fact, be the winner. He may, for the 30% of the precincts, still not, we don't know their votes. He may be the one who gets a disproportionate number of that, and he may be closer to 30 but he did well enough to, I think, carry the momentum forward. I don't think in the larger scheme of things, he certainly did well enough to establish the fact that the left of the Democratic Party is going to be a major player, and it may elect one of its candidates as the nominee. The candidates of the left, you say, got 40%. Mm-hmm. So last time they got 49%. But only got 49% in Iowa. Well, um, it's a two-horse race there. Yeah, yeah, I know, but it's and just... Sorry, I just like... No, you had to point that out. But I think the the significance of the left in this election is still going to be deeper and more robust than it was in 2016. Yeah, I would just put it sort of the same point, but put it slightly differently. It was a terrible night for Biden. You know, he got off to a very good start. He then got into difficulties. He then seemed to stabilize. And that seems to have fallen away again. If you look at what's what's likely to happen over the next month or so, it's quite difficult to see what Biden's way back is particularly as he's not going to win in New Hampshire. So he's really resting on trying to get the momentum back in South Carolina, where many more African-American voters come into play. The difficulty then for Sanders is if very early falling away of Biden actually strengthens Bloomberg's position and he becomes the new, if you like, centrist, not quite establishment, but certainly centrist candidate against Sanders. Now, Sanders versus Bloomberg, although Bloomberg has certain advantages. You know, he's not in an, any meaningful deep sense a Democrat. I could argue that <laughs> Sanders isn't either. But I, I still think that Sanders fighting against Bloomberg gives him advantages that Sanders fighting a long fight against Biden doesn't have. Well, as Michael Moore called him, Republican billionaire Mike Bloomberg. I think Both Blo- of which are true a few years ago, and one Blo- of which is still true. I think Bloomberg is one of the big winners in the Iowa primary, even though he didn't enter it. And his decision not to enter it is now vindicated. And he has already poured millions and millions and more of his own dollars and hired many more people. And it makes Super Tuesday in March an extraordinarily important event. I agree with Helen. I think this it's a, the big loser here is Biden. I think we won't know whether he can hold it together at, at all until we see South Carolina, where a large part of the primary is made up of African-American voters. And they are probably the constituency that is most devoted to him. That's going to be in late February. If that firewall has breached, he is done. And here, uh, Mayor Pete has positioned himself to be another candidate of the center. I think Iowa worked for him, as it often does for outsiders. The way in which the Iowa caucus is working, after putting so much time on the ground, face-to-face meetings, it allows an outsider with no real experience in national politics to climb. This is what Obama did in, in 2008, and Mayor Pete has now done something of the sort. And it's got to be either him or Bloomberg, I think, who is going to hold the center of the Democratic Party. Whether Bloomberg is formally a Democrat or not, I'm not sure. He fits certainly fits comfortably into the Clinton wing of the party and represents a return to those principles. But I think it's going to be a fight between Mayor Pete and, and Bloomberg for the center, and a fight between Sanders and Warren for the left, and uh, Sanders is probably going to win that. 
I don't think that Mayor Pete can do very well beyond these first few states, particularly because he seems to do so poorly with African-American voters. If he was able to translate this relative success in Iowa into New Hampshire, it might be different, but it's quite hard to see how he's winning in New Hampshire. If you look at Bloomberg, so he's torn up the rule book, he's doing it differently, he can do it because of the money, so he's spending massively on ads, Super Bowl and other things. He's presumably gambling on a brokered convention. It's hard for him, starting from where he's going to start, to get a majority of delegates. And then the other thing that he's doing, so he, a lot of these candidates have problems with African-American voters. His strategy seems to be to be getting the endorsement of city mayors, particularly in the West. And he's been quite successful in that. You know, he's, He was a mayor himself. He's the guy who says he can get stuff done, but then looking for not national endorsements and not even necessarily statewide endorsements but city level endorsements so these are all quite interesting strategies like skipping the early votes spending money in other parts of the country going for a brokered convention with the backing of mayors if he won it on that basis he would have changed the rules yes and he's a very sophisticated planner and this is what bloomberg does it'll be interesting to see whether it's successful or not and he's also renowned for getting the best people to work for him. And we won't see the results of this until the votes for March are in. But he, yes, he is aiming for a brokered convention and blowing away the other centrist candidates and betting them that when push comes to shove at the Democratic convention, they will deem a socialist like Bernie to be too dangerous and they will gather around him, even though there are questions about his electability. One of the, another statistic coming out of Iowa, which is been lost in all the hoo-ha, is that apparently turnout was significantly lower than expected. A lot of precincts hired bigger gymnasiums and halls to have the discussions. They were expecting a turnout of 250,000. Keep in mind this 250,000 in a 330 million person nation, so their numbers are small, but they were hoping for expecting Obama-like turnout in 2008 or 2018 turnout for the off-year elections. These are all still guesstimates. There's no hard data, but the estimates are coming in at 170,000, so uh, far below. So one of, another issue that the Democrats face is that they have to turn out their people. They have to find someone who Democrats are enormously enthusiastic about. They need an Obama-type turnout or a 2018-type turnout, and Iowa suggests a lot of people found none of the candidates compelling. In a way, that's my case against Bernie, which is there was real enthusiasm, you know, the coverage of that's where the public excitement was around his events. It does not translate into people showing up to vote. And I think that would be the big fear I would have. But somebody's still got to beat him. And, sure. and, and that's Bloomberg's problem, I think, in the sense of what is his substantive strategy rather than his organisational strategy. So if you take... Trump, when he was trying to win the Republican nomination in a pretty unorthodox kind of way, by spending very little money at that point, not having much organisation, doing it via Twitter account and the um, debates, he clearly had a set of issues that he was determined to exploit. And they started with the illegal immigration issue. That's what he was using to finish Rubio off more than any other issue. And he had a way of like tying what he wanted to say about that to what he wanted to say about donors and the Republican Party, the Republican Party establishment. It's not clear to me what Bloomberg substantively has got to say other than I'm the guy who can beat Donald Trump. Now, 
I think that what the Democrats are fighting about is what does it mean to beat Donald Trump once he's in office? Where do you position yourself in order to do that? Because one way of looking at it is just to say, well, it can be anybody because he's such a terrible president that any Democrat should be able to beat him. But what we're seeing is is a loss of nerve about the idea that he simply can be beaten because he's Donald Trump. It's a more substantive question. Where does the Democratic Party position itself in order to do that? And it's quite hard and substantive policy terms to see why Bloomberg's the answer. Gary, I'm going to ask you this as a historian, but also given what we've just been talking about in the current state of American politics. So a brokered convention, those histories, long histories of these things, they've been very consequential. Abraham Lincoln came out of a pretty messy convention, and he only won because it was in Illinois. Where is the convention this time? Milwaukee. Well, that explains everything then. Which had a socialist mayor for 20 years. Okay. Kind of paint the scene for us. So you can imagine this being, um, if that's what happens, and it could well happen. Helen's question, what does it mean to beat Donald Trump? Huge social and cultural divisions in the United States within the Democratic Party, if it's Bloomberg versus Sanders. My preoccupation, massive generational divisions. You know, young people kind of swamping Milwaukee, right? Coming to get Bernie over the line. Older people there too. <laughs> the establishment, the smoke-filled rooms without smoke in them. Is well, it like the ones from the past or is it like the 2020 version is just going to be a totally different thing? It won't be like 1861. It won't be like 1861, uh, nor... Oh, sorry, I, it would have been 1860, wouldn't it? 1860, nor will it be like 1924, where the Democratic Party in Madison Square Gardens needed 103 ballots over 10 days. Um, you sure it won't be like that? <laughs> it won't be 103 ballots. Uh, and that is an example of a deadlock convention. And there's all this maneuvering as different states and different power centers of the party offer to swap their votes to different candidates. And in those 103 ballots, all kinds of different deals were worked out, none of which succeeded. It was deep divide between the wet Al Smith, uh, governor of New York, who was a Catholic and an opponent of prohibition, and William McAdoo, Woodrow Wilson's son-in-law from the South, Protestant, didn't reject the support of the KKK. South versus North, Protestant versus Catholic, they finally gave Wet up. Wet versus the, dry. Wet versus dry. They finally gave up on the 103rd ballot and chose a nondescript corporation attorney from West Virginia who then got hammered in the general election by Calvin Coolidge. It won't go exactly like that because the party bosses don't have the same sort of power, but it will become horse swapping and it could go multiple ballots before someone gets the necessary votes to put them over the top. And the Democratic Party, I don't think the split in it is quite as deep as it was in 1924. The Democratic Party has a long history of, of having deep splits between its, its various wings. But the split is serious. And I think the Democratic Party is going to be held up by the divisions between the left and the center as to what Bloomberg, what his substantive policy is going to be. What was Franklin Roosevelt's policy before he got into office? And in some ways, the left set the agenda for what his presidency would be. And I think if the Democrats are to be successful, the left will influence Bloomberg, pull him further to the left on economic issues than he would otherwise be willing to go. And of course, his credentials in terms of the what we might call the social liberalism of the left, those multiculturalism, a high regard for identity politics, you know, those he has, you know, he's, his credentials there are superb. So 
I don't have trouble imagining him having a substance, but if he's got a triumph over the left, he's going to have to incorporate, as Roosevelt did, a part of the left into his governing coalition. But on some racial questions, there's a deep problem with Bloomberg because of what he did as mayor. Yes, yes. So it depends what we mean by multicultural here, but unless I've got this wrong, there's an issue, isn't there, with Bloomberg and parts of the Democratic Party because billionaire Republican mayor of New York, Mike Bloomberg, is not at all what they're looking for. Yes, uh, but he also won three elections in multicultural New York City in an overwhelmingly democratic city. So that that is not to be discounted. B- uh, Sanders has made more inroads in the African-American community than he did in 2016 and the support of Ocasio-Cortez in New York as a non-white woman and bringing that coalition to him has made a world of difference. But if it's Sanders and Bloomberg fighting it out or Bloomberg and Warren fighting it out, I think the key in any of those cases is to make sure that there is enthusiastic turnout among people of color in the United States to vote in the 2020 election, because without that, the Democrats are not going to win. At the same time, they have to move beyond their own multicultural base, and they have to take a portion, of, I would say, of either the working class of Michigan and Wisconsin that in Pennsylvania that went for Trump so heavily, uh, which Sanders could conceivably do, or they have to pick up significant strength in Republican Suburbs, and that means softening the economic attack on the rich and playing up cultural liberalism. The thing that I was reminded of as this chaos unfolded on Monday night, Tuesday morning, was really those conventions, 1968, 1972. Now, obviously, there wasn't the violence that we're not contemplating, I think, at convention later this year. But what it showed, I think, was if you look at the distrust that what happened invoked in Sanders supporters in particular, the idea that this was being rigged against them again. It isn't just that the Sanders part of the party is, and as you say, younger supporters of the Sanders part of the party are estranged from the party establishment's policies, that they want something that's more radical in economic terms and they want something that's more radical in healthcare um, in particular. It's estranged from the processes of the party. And that was true in 1968. On the one hand, you've got a substantive issue, which is the war, Vietnam War. And on the other hand, you've got this idea that the party bosses are fixing the nomination and trying to take it away from Eugene McCarthy um, when he deserves it. And I think we can see something of those dynamics that might now play out in the way in which this nomination contest runs the way through to the convention. Even before this happened, and I think it happens every four years, there were the newspaper articles saying it's crazy to start in Iowa. It's not representative of the country. It's too white. It's too rural. They got this quirky system, all of that. And then New Hampshire, too. This race would look so different if you started in South Carolina, and presumably this time it would. I mean, like if the first vote was in South Carolina, Biden's going to win in South Carolina, it would look very different. And then there was the chaos. So, like, those articles from two days ago now look either sort of prescient or far too tame. If you're going to start in Iowa, you've got to at least know what happened in Iowa. But particularly this year, given some of these divides we've been talking about, does it really matter? Are these races really shaped by the sequence of these votes? Iowa is not America. It's a kind of outlier for America. It's not those swing states. There was some suggestion that the place you should start is in the state that was closest in the last presidential election, because that's the most important one. I don't know where that would be. Would it be Michigan or somewhere? Or you do them all together. These other options. I mean, historically, has it really mattered starting in Iowa? I mean, Obama won in Iowa and then he went on to win, but... Well, the Iowans make two claims. One, 
they have a face-to-face democracy. They discuss and deliberate these issues. They vet them more thoroughly than anyone else. You can't just cast a ballot. You have to come with all your neighbors and schoolmates and come to the place and talk and hash it out. And this and, is and then use an app that doesn't work. And then like use an traditional app that iron work. method. And that this is real democracy. And connected to that is that procedurally, that's a procedural issue. Connected to that is the substantive issue. This has allowed certain people on the outskirts of American politics who don't have a big track record to vault into the visibility of the nation because they have been on the ground for two years meeting people, going to all these little places, and they have had a breakout. And the paradigmatic case is Obama. And this time that person would be Buttigieg. Yes. And And he's really focused on Iowa. Yes. Yes. And I think Obama is, is his model. And he's had something of the Obama experience. Another person... Very little political experience on the outskirts of the centers of power in the Democratic Party, and suddenly he has visibility he didn't have. I'm still searching for the adjectives to describe what happened in Iowa. You know, the, no, no adjective is too extreme, uh, shocking, outrageous. They had nothing to do there the last two years, but uh, to get this right, we, don't, we still don't have all the information on the app, but the word coming out is that. It's only been around for two months. It has not been properly tested or vetted. Uh, You know, that they would screw this up is just really beyond belief. And I think it's going to have the effect in this election of diminishing Iowa because there are so many questions, as Helen suggested, about the legitimacy of that vote. But there's no question the Sanders people are going to come out of, of Iowa thinking momentum was stolen from them, that they had something more that they could have have done there. I think Sanders can recover from that. I think the net effect is to say, Iowa, rest in peace, or to use a Trumpism, Iowa, you're fired. This but is- it's fine for Sanders because he's going to win in New Hampshire. And if he doesn't win in New Hampshire, we will edit this next week. I mean, I think Mayor Pete, because I keep saying his name differently, <laughs> Buttigieg, he's the loser from that. I mean, like he would have got more, if he does squeak out a narrow win, he would have been the winner two nights ago, a night and a half ago. And now he's the kind of, oh, we did okay. And then he's not going to win New Hampshire. The Obama case is interesting because he's the one person with a clear trajectory that comes out of Iowa generally. I think I'm right in saying that Bill Clinton came fourth in in Iowa. So that's good for Biden. It's not had a great track record of actually in these contested Democratic nomination processes being the state that determines the winner. You're more likely to look to what happens in New Hampshire than what happens in, in Iowa. What was really striking in 2008 was how generally in the caucus states, Obama did extremely well. And it was a deliberate strategy on the Obama campaign's part. It wasn't just about Iowa. It went went all the way through. Generally, the big primaries were won by Hillary Clinton in 2008, and the caucuses were won by Obama, often by big margins, which gave him those delegate advantages that put him in the end in an unbeatable position from Hillary Clinton's point of view. So we can turn this into an issue about Iowa or we can say is it about the role of the caucuses? Because some of these stuff did happen in 2008 too. In 2008 Texas had a primary and a caucus and I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying again that the Texas caucus results were never released or verified. This had to be ignored. Caucuses generally have got problems regardless of whether they use apps in terms of counting and the perception that the counting of this is fair and that you actually can produce a, always produce a, a clear winner out of it. And I vividly remember in 2008, Obama won in Iowa, then Hillary pulled off the comeback in New Hampshire. In South it, Carolina that did it, that was the decisive for Obama getting that early momentum, but which was a primary After those first two, it was like, 
Obama has broken through and then it was like Hillary has sort of shut the door again because Iowa first, then New Hampshire, New Hampshire is going to set the tone and it didn't that time. It's also interesting in a way that the Obama strategy is literally the opposite of the Bloomberg strategy. So the Obama strategy is to make the most of that form of face-to-face politics and the Bloomberg strategy is just to spend unbelievable amounts of money on TV ads and not even bother with this form of politics. Um, so if Bloomberg ends up on top this time, it will be a 180 degrees turn from the Obama revolution, even though he'll have done it using technology skillfully and strategizing skillfully. But it's Bloomberg is not going from farm to farm in Iowa, showing people what a great the guy big, he is. The big difference, I think, then 2008 is if you strip away the issue of Iraq, which was about the past, then there was scarcely any difference in policy terms, really, between the candidates in 2008, Obama and Clinton and Biden and John Edwards. It's not that there were no differences, but they were minimal differences. There's actually a, a big political debate going on in this contest in the Democratic nomination. So you've got to sort of think about, well, what's the relationship between the strategy that they're adopting and the substantive positions that they're adopting? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Republicans have been enjoying this. Trump, the Trump family, has been enjoying this. Uh, Trump Jr. tweeted the thing that a lot of people will have thought and then maybe will have dismissed because it's too obvious, which is these people want, they don't just want to run the country if you are the Democratic Party, particularly some of these candidates, you have a plan, which is kind of a form of planning, and it involves quite proactive government. And you're saying, we can get this done, we can get this done. And they can't even run this thing. (laughs) They've got an app that they haven't tested, it doesn't work. And you see that and you think, yeah, of course, Republicans would say that you can't trust these people to run the country, they can't even run a caucus. And yet we know in democratic politics, some of these things really strike a chord. You know, that book that we've talked about a bit on this podcast, Democracy for Realists by Arkin and Bartels, which shows, among other things, that the number of shark attacks there are in an area can determine people's vote in a presidential election, even though presidents are really not responsible for the behavior of sharks. It's at least possible that this is, apart from being a disaster for Iowa, is a disaster for the party of the left. Well, I I wouldn't be worried about Trump's tweets about no, the, the Democrats can't run. Sorry, I should say that's what I mean. So you see it coming from that side and you, yeah. there's a tendency to dismiss it. But if you strip away and just think about the look. The the look is definitely bad. But I think if it was just a one-off, the Democrats could overcome it. What I worry about is it's not just a one-off and it speaks to a, a deeper problem for the Democratic Party. And uh, coming back to your point about Obama versus Bloomberg, one going face-to-face and the other going technocratic and high-tech media. What Trump has done is, has been to fuse the two. He, he's got the face-to-face, not in the caucus, but in his rallies, which are a remarkable f- form of theater and phenomena in American politics. Uh, if you want to understand the power of Trump, 
watch a couple of his rallies. They are phenomenal theatrical and powerful moments. And whether you like this man or not, you have to come away admiring the political acumen that informs what he's doing. And he combines that with a social media platform that is far more sophisticated than what the Democrats have. And the Trump model needs to be the Democrats model, whether it's a left candidate or a center candidate. And part of what makes this Iowa technological failure so unnerving and upsetting is is that this was meant to be the response to Trump. This app, I don't know if it's developed by Clinton people or not, but it is developed by organizations called Acronym and Shadow. I mean, I love the names. And they imagine themselves as the progressive technical response to what Trump has done. And one of their first efforts to unveil their technology has completely blown up. And so the more serious issue here is whether the Democrats have the technical sophistication on social media to match Trump and to marry that to this face-to-face or tweet-to-tweet politics that Trump is the master of in American politics today. I think that there's a kind of repetitive thing going on, not just in American politics, but in European politics as well, perhaps in other parts of the world, where there's a sort of underlying frame about these elections of order versus chaos. And that Trump definitely was chaos last time, and that was part of the reason why it it looked like it was going to be so difficult for him to win. And the Democrats need to insert themselves as he's still chaos and we're order. But you just can't do that when the very first thing that you do in your election cycle for the year is Gary was looking for the word it's chaos is to produce chaos it's not even about the app necessarily or the the symbolism of of it being a technocratic failure it's more they were supposed to come up with a leading candidate the drama of producing a leading candidate after all this talk for a year somebody or at least two people were going to be in a poll position and then absolutely nothing came and instead chaos ensued and that's terrible for the Democrats. So last night we had another piece of great American political theatre. I was thinking about this. I think Malcolm Gladwell has a thing about sports. There are some sports which are great live and terrible on TV. I think ice hockey is the one. And then there are some sports that are much better on TV than they are live. American football is the one. So I was thinking some aspects of American politics are, I imagine, not that much fun live. I don't think I would have wanted to sit through the State of the Union in the room. But the theatre of having the Speaker of the House sitting behind the President so he can't see her. And Nancy Pelosi, whatever else, has really exploited the fact that she's sitting behind him and so she can do stuff. So last time it was the sarcastic clapping. This time it was the tearing up of the speech. It's great theatre. It is great theatre, and I couldn't believe the moment when uh, she ripped up his speech after after he was done, and she did it slowly, methodically. It wasn't an impulsive act. It was not impulsive. It was premeditated. She had been plotting that for the previous 77 minutes or 78 minutes since, since he started. But uh, my sense is that Trump is, it was a big win for him. It was an uncharacteristically disciplined speech. I don't think he mentioned impeachment nor Iowa. He went through the list of the achievements of his administration He had some great moments of people he was honoring. I don't think this is going to work in terms of votes, but he reached out to the African-American community in terms of a number of the people in the audience. The fiasco of Iowa, a disciplined speech from him, which is really, we might say, the first speech 
for him of the 2020 campaign. He also dispensed a lot with what is de rigueur at State of the Unions, which is what makes these events so boring, where presidents feel compelled to enumerate their 15 legislative initiatives. I've never understood why in the television age one would choose this moment to do it. Just hand it out, let people read it. This should be an occasion more for images, direction, uh, mood. And I think in that respect, it was a very successful speech. And today he's got to be acquitted by the Senate, so he won't be removed from office. So he has three, I would say, three triumphs this week. And his polling is now up to 49%. With in, Gallup. In Gallup. Uh, which, so it's the highest with Gallup. It's still, if you average it out, it's it's in its normal band. But I believe it's the highest that Gallup has registered. Uh, so the Democrats had a bad week and Trump had a very good week. Now the campaign season in the U.S. is very long. I'm not troubled by the fact that one person didn't emerge as a clear front runner out of Iowa. In fact, given the mess that Iowa made of things, it's it's actually good that the top four are still in it and they're going to have to win some other states in order to vault into the lead. So I'm less troubled by that. But I am troubled by the chaos and the inability of the Democrats to um, find the tools they need thus far to remove Trump from office in 2020. So I want to ask Alan two things. So one of which just pick up on what Gary said and then picking up what you said a bit before. So Nancy Pelosi tears up the speech. It's kind of good theater. I think her sarcastic clapping was better, but she's tearing up the speech after she's presided over a failed impeachment process and on the day that her party has made a mess of the basis of democratic politics with a small d, which is counting people's votes. Therefore, it could look pretty petulant. And then Trump's speech on this question of what do people stand for? So he was not standing for chaos last night. He was standing for a form of order and also for prosperity. I mean, it was absolutely a classic prosperity speech, which has got a long tradition in American politics. It's quite a good way to win. So he's not chaos anymore on the basis of last night. Even tearing up the speech was more like chaos. We might be a bit sceptical about how long Trump is capable of staying in order mode rather than chaos mode himself. And he has given orderly State of the Union. So his first State of the Union shocked people because it was quite respectable and traditional. I mean, last night was also weird. The Rush Limbaugh thing, giving Rush Limbaugh the Medal of Freedom, getting Melania to put it around his neck. I mean, that I wouldn't call that order either. That was just something else. But... It was still pretty conventional. Thus far, it would seem that the economy is in a, albeit with some caveats, largely on his side. And I suspect that what we're going to see from him, unless Bloomberg were to be the candidate, because I suspect he would go in a different direction, is lots of attacks on whoever the Democratic candidate turns out to be on energy questions. Because this is an area where they have moved a long way to the left and particularly over the shale oil industry and being in favour of bans on the shale sector. Now, this oil and gas is a significant part of the American economy in terms of employment. It's extremely significant in terms of energy output. And the Democrats, I think, is a party are moving themselves to a not easily defendable position. And is it in terms to- of a general election campaign, if Trump really starts attacking on this issue... Is it fair to say it's particularly important economically in those parts of the country, those swing states and elsewhere, that will decide the election? It's 
less important for employment in New York. Um, yeah, it's important for employment, say, in Ohio as a, as a state where it matters. But I think it will, going back to the order chaos issue, it's another way of sort of framing the Democrats on the side of chaos for Trump because it's like we have this, what he will present as an economic success and an energy necessity and that what the Democrats want to do is to is to tear that down. I think he'll be vulnerable on economic grounds. If he protects shale, the... There are a lot of farmers suffering in the United States right now who gave him a lot of votes. And depending on how the health crisis goes in China and how that's going to shake up international trade and, and exports, it could be a very bad year for agrarian America coming up. And there's a lot of time to the election. We don't know that the numbers he has now are going to persist through then. So uh, I think he's economically vulnerable. And also we have to keep in mind that, and here the the combined vote of Warren and Sanders in Iowa, not known as a left-wing state, by the way, the number of those votes for the left indicates the degree to which a very significant part of the electorate in America has moved left, not to the point of socialism, but to the point of being very worried about the climate, being very worried about poor people, being upset about the failure to regulate the social media companies. There are points the Democrats can make very powerfully about the absolute need to regulate the economy and regulate the political process and grab back some power that has accumulated in the hands of enormously powerful corporations. And I think Trump is is vulnerable on those grounds. So I think the economics questions are going to work both ways. And I think there's an opening for the Democrats there. We can be sure that Trump will return to a chaos mode of governing and electioneering. I mean, uh, one of you said before, he can only follow the teleprompter for so long. I mean, that's not his preferred way of engaging with his public. So there's going to be uh, plenty of chaos. And I think here the Democrats need to learn something from the Republicans because chaos, sowing chaos and reaping the benefits from it may be a key way of succeeding politically in this social media age. And I think the, so the, I would say the Democrats, it's not simply a matter of getting rid of the chaos in their ranks. It's, it's learning perhaps how to deploy chaos against your political opponent. That is what Trump does so brilliantly. Two last questions and they're related. So Pelosi did two things last night. She ripped up the speech and then she issued a written response, which was entirely focused on healthcare, which is clearly going to be a big part of trying to be on the side of order against chaos. I mean, Trump at least potentially can be painted as chaos in he's the terror down of Obamacare or aspects of Obamacare. And the Democrats are making a big play of that. The question which is related to that, because we haven't discussed her, but on our previous conversations, we talked much more about Elizabeth Warren. So she released her healthcare plan and then her numbers started to tick down. And I feel a bit conspiratorial about her candidacy and the ways in which it's been taken down and the forces that have taken her down. Is there any path for her from here, do you think? I mean, I don't think there is, as, as I look at it, even though she came third and Biden came fourth. I still think Biden's much likelier to win the nomination than Elizabeth Warren. And was she undone by her health care plan? I think she was undone by her health care plan, although ironically, Bernie was not undone by it, even though his is a bigger plan. <laughs> His is a bigger plan, but I think there was a concerted effort to take her down uh, by the big tech companies, and she has been much more explicit about what the consequences for 
the big tech companies and other big companies in America will be if she's elected, which is that she's either going to regulate the hell out of them in the interests of popular democracy and, and responsibility, or she's going to break them up. Bernie has not been nearly as specific about that. I think the campaign against Elizabeth Warren succeeded. So and you don't see a path for her? I don't her. really see a, a path for her. And I think also she's more electorally narrow than Bernie is. Despite her own working class roots in Oklahoma, she has not shown much ability to break out of the image of her being a, a brainiac from Harvard and suitable for college towns and college communities and, and coasts. Um, I would feel a lot better if she were drawing real support, say, from a place like Oklahoma, which is where she was born and raised, and she has credentials to draw that support, but the appeal is, simp- is simply not there. And I think she also made a mistake, a, a tactic that worked for her for a while, but then backfired when she began saying, I have a plan for that. And at one point, the Wall Street Journal published every plan that she had proposed with an accompanying detailed plan, and there must have been 25 or 30 plans, and you look at the list of these things, and you say, my head hurts. My head hurts. I thought of Corbyn at that point and all his plans for transforming everything inside, although... He didn't actually have plans for a lot of those things. Her plans were much more detailed. They were serious plans. And I'm thinking, there's a kind of madness about this as, as a strategy. So what began as something very clever has also boxed her in. And the, the Wall Street Journal published it without commentary. They were saying, if you look at the full list of this... You can't possibly vote for her. I don't think it was so much the healthcare plan itself that taken Elizabeth Warren down because it's pretty much identical to Sanders' plan. It was her engaging with the question of how it was going to be paid for that did significant damage to Warren's campaign. And that, it, it seems to me, is, is the objection that the centrists or the Democratic Party establishment has to Sanders being the candidate is, is they do not want to go into a general election with Sanders having these unfunded promises about Medicare for all, wiping out student debt, free tuition, etc. They they think that that's massive amounts of ammunition for Trump when it comes to the the general election. Now, it may well be, but at the same time, it's, it's pretty clear the fact that Warren went as far as she did onto essentially Medicare for all, Sanders' signature policy commitment in some respects, shows that there's a significant part of the Democratic coalition that wants health care and not simply reforming Obama's version of health care to be the signature left issue. And I think that, that that does raise some really quite complicated questions for the Democratic Party. And it puts the Democrats, if they do end up with a left candidate like Sanders in a, in a rather different position than, say, Corbyn, was leading the the Labour Party on domestic issues because then you're going to be committing to a massive reform that has consequences for every American voter who already has health insurance via either their employer or the private and Obamacare market. And you said if they end up with a candidate of the left like Bernie, bluntly, do you think there's a path still for Elizabeth Warren? No, not at all. No, I think if, if the left wins, it will be Sanders. There is still a long way to go in this story. We're next going to talk about it on the morning after Super Tuesday. We're doing a live edition with Gary and Helen. We'll know a lot more then. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be focusing on Europe. Next week, we're talking about Italy. The week after that, we're talking about France. 
there is plenty to discuss. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. We don't know. There's been no reporting on who's reported, who's not, whether the, you know, there, like there is a national reporting. Oh, the agrarian districts haven't come in yet. The farmers haven't voted. We haven't heard anything like that yet. Who are the farmers for? I'm just using that. Oh, I see. Right. It's like <laughs> I was hearing quite a bit of chat. There was quite a bit of chatter on Twitter. Farmers for Klobuchar. There was quite a, bit of, <laughs> quite a bit of chatter on Twitter that the remaining things are more pro-burning. 